Welcome to the Three Takeaways podcast, which features short, memorable conversations with the world's best thinkers, business leaders, writers, politicians, scientists, and other newsmakers. Each episode ends with the three key takeaways that person has learned over their lives and their careers. And now your host and board member of schools at Harvard, Princeton, and Columbia, Lynn Toman. Hi, everybody. It's Lynn Toman. Welcome to another episode. Today, I'm here with Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, the free remote learning platform. Khan Academy is unique. No one comes close to them in breadth or in scale. They offer lessons for all ages, from pre-K through college. They also offer a wide range of classes, including math, English, history, science, computer science, and many others. And they've achieved scale with over 30 million students per month. And every month, students spend about 2 billion minutes of learning time on Khan Academy. Today, we'll find out what Khan Academy is doing now and how Sal reimagines education. Welcome, Sal, and thank you so much for our conversation today. Great to be here, Lynn. Can you tell us how you came to start Khan Academy? Yeah, you know, it goes back to 2004, uh, my original background was in in computer science and in math, but in 2004, I was a year out of business school, post-business school. I found myself as an analyst at a hedge fund and I had just gotten married and my family from New Orleans was visiting me in Boston right after our wedding. And it just came out of conversation that my 12-year-old cousin Nadia was having trouble with math. I offered to tutor her. She agreed. So she goes back to New Orleans and we did, you know, distance learning uh, a, a while ago. And, you know, the early days was just trying to deprogram her her lack of self-confidence uh, but then slowly surely she started to get that confidence back she started to learn unit conversion which is where she had difficulty that was what caused her to be placed into a slower math class and then she got caught up and actually got a little ahead of her class and at that point i became what i call a, a tiger cousin and i called up her school and i said you know i really think nadia Rahman should be able to retake that placement exam they said who are you i said i'm her cousin and they let her take it. The same Nadia who you know, was being placed into a remedial math class was then put into an advanced math class. So I was hooked. It was a cool way for me to stay connected with my young cousin. I enjoy teaching, tutoring. I enjoy the academic subjects. Uh, so then I started working with her younger brothers. Uh, then you fast forward about 12 months, 18 months. The little firm I was working for was just me and my portfolio manager at the time. His wife became a professor at Stanford. So we moved out to Northern California. But more relevant to, to your question, word spread in my family that free tutoring was going on. And so I found myself every day with 10, 15 cousins, family, friends from around the country doing, you know, kind of distance learning. And I saw a pattern that a lot of them just had gaps in their knowledge that they weren't, it wasn't the issue that they weren't bright. It wasn't the issue that they didn't have great teachers. It's just that if you're in an algebra class, but if you had a gap from fifth grade dividing decimals or a gap from sixth grade negative numbers, it's very hard to address that in an algebra class that's just trying to teach you the algebra. And so I started writing some software for them, for them to practice and fill in all of their gaps and in, in all of these different skills. And that was the first Khan Academy. It had nothing to do with videos. Uh, and I write, wrote a little database so that they, I could keep track of what they were doing. And uh, I was showing that all my friends knew that I had this crazy family project that I was writing software for them and tutoring them every night after work. And my friend Zuli said, well, why don't you, how are you scaling your lessons up? And I said, well, it's hard, Zuli. You know, even with 10 or 15 cousins, I feel like I'm repeating the same thing over. It's hard to cater to their individual needs. And he said, well, why don't you record some of your lessons as videos and upload them onto YouTube for your family? And I immediately thought that was a horrible idea. I said, YouTube is for cats playing piano. It is not for serious mathematics. Uh, but I went home, 
got over the idea that it was not my idea. And I, I gave it a shot. And, you know, I just started making videos on stuff that I, I was getting a lot of questions on. And I started telling my cousins, look, watch this at your own time and pace. And that way, when we get on the phone, we can go a little bit deeper. And after about a month of that, I asked them for feedback. And they somewhat famously gave me the backhanded compliment that they, they like me better on YouTube than in person. And I took that as positive feedback. And, and at first, it's counterintuitive. Like, why would they like this video version of their cousin versus their cousin? And they were saying... Well, they weren't saying that they didn't appreciate me calling them and having the live human help. That was essential. But what they were saying is it was really valuable to kind of have a a tutor on demand, have an infinitely patient tutor to be able to access the explanations in the middle of the night, to be able to access an explanation. Maybe they're a ninth grader, but they need an explanation for something from fourth grade. They don't have to feel embarrassed about it anymore. And it also liberated our phone calls to go even deeper. I was able to focus more on motivation. I was able to focus more on uh, unblocking them and, and trying to understand their life circumstances versus just explaining the academics. So I kept going. As soon as it became clear that people were not my cousins were watching. And, you know, by 2009, there was about 50, 100,000 folks using it. And so that's when I quit my day job, set it up as a not-for-profit with a mission of free world-class education for anyone anywhere and tried to fundraise for it. And that first year was a tough year. We were living off of savings. Our first son had just been born. But by the fall of 2010, about a year into this, you know, quitting my day job to do it, we got some of our first real philanthropic support to to become a real organization. And over the last 10 years, we got to what we were just talking about. It's over 100 million registered users now and uh, tens of millions of folks around the world. But you know, I, I still feel like we have a long way to go. What you've done is extraordinary. When you talk about starting this in 2004, most people don't realize that the iPhone hadn't even been created yet. The iPhone came out in 2007, and yet you were scaling to 100,000 users, you just said, by 2009. So it's incredible what you've built. So congratulations. I appreciate that. And there's so many things that have fallen Khan Academy's way and my way, frankly, to help this become what it is. But I tell a lot of folks, I did a thought experiment. I wrote a letter to 2010 Sal uh, last year. It's just kind of a 10-year anniversary of, of when Khan Academy became like a real organization. And I think 2010 Sal could, would look at 2020 Sal or 2020 Khan Academy and say, oh my God, like we've grown beyond our dreams. But the reality is the mission of free world-class education for anyone anywhere, it still hasn't been achieved. And I think Khan Academy from 2010 to now, we've kind of proven that we can do something highly efficacious, highly cost effective, high social return and do it at scale, at the scale of tens of millions. But I think the next phase of Khan Academy is actually going to be even more interesting. Can we scale to billions? Can we actually deliver over the next few decades of literally almost everyone or everyone has access to a free world-class education? For someone who's listening now, And isn't that familiar with Khan Academy? Can you explain a little bit about how it works and what makes Khan Academy unique? Yeah, so it's current incarnation of of Khan Academy. You can imagine there's many ways to try to provide a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. And I, I wouldn't claim that we've solved it, as I just said. It's a journey. A lot of our early users and still a lot of those 30 million that are coming every month are folks who need help with the topic. So they might do a web search. A lot of them have now know about Khan Academy, so they might go directly to Khan Academy and look up the topics they need. It's practice. And the practice we provide on Khan Academy isn't just, you know, four questions. And once you do them, 
you're kind of done whether you got them right or wrong for every skill. And this is true in math. We have math from pre-K all the way through the core of college. We have science, all the sciences at the high school level. We're hoping to build at the middle school, elementary school level. We have humanities at the high school level where the official practice for the SAT, but the practice component of Khan Academy allows for personalization and mastery. So for every skill, there's actually, from a student's point of view, a functionally infinite set of questions. Usually there's about 30 questions per skill, but a student might do five or six at a time. But students get as many shots as goal to establish mastery. And mastery isn't just by getting four or five questions right of a specific skill. They have to do that. Then they have to do it in a context switching mode. Then they can do it on unit tests and course challenges. And then to support that practice, there's solutions for everything. There's hints. There's videos. Those early videos that I was making for my cousins were really in support of the practice, and they still are. And we're hoping to add as many supports as possible, including one of our strongest supports today is tools for teachers. They should be able to be empowered with the same data that I was empowered with when I was tutoring my cousins to know who's progressing, who's not, how much time are they spending, who's engaged, who's not, and what are actionable insights so that they can know who to intervene uh, with, with different students. So our goal, anyone can go. It's all free. It's all not commercial. There, we have a Khan Academy Kids app uh, that's actually reading, writing, and social emotional learning for the ages three to seven crowd. And then we have the older Khan Academy for elementary, middle, and high school and, and early college age students where they can get as much practice and feedback as they need. And, you know, the vision, the hope is that we can keep doing this to cover all core academic subjects, do it in a personalized, highly engaging way, and eventually actually uh, do some form of, of credentialing. Why are we unique? I think there's two layers of it. I think one is maybe the ambition of the mission. I think, I think there, there aren't a lot of organizations that are actually tr striving to do what we're doing of actually try to provide all core academic subjects across so many subjects and grades and practice and do it in a mastery learning framework that's engaging. But I think if you get to kind of the, the core of even, you know, how all of this started and, and why maybe some of that original content that I was making for my cousins resonated and hopefully continues to resonate, I think it, it was fortunate that this started as a family project. And I think people can sense that there is a, I mean, I don't want to sound cheesy, but there's a love. There's a love in it. I don't know if that was grammatically correct. There's a love. There's love in it. Uh, <laughs> that thought came across. That first content I was making for my family, even the videos, it was very comfortable, very conversational. It really felt like we were at, you know, sitting at the kitchen table together. I would crack jokes because I really didn't think anyone was listening. And I think that eccentricity, that comfort, I am someone, my wife will tell you, most of my friends will tell you that I get excited very easily, especially when I'm learning. And so people I think can hear that. And hopefully, you know, there's other people who also make content now, but I tell everyone on our team, you should not do what you're doing unless you're excited about it because whoever is the consumer of what you're doing is going to be able to sense. And obviously that's obvious in a video, but I actually think that's true whether you're writing software, whether you're writing a text or even managing. I think it's really important that you care and that you have passion for what you're doing because that translates into, into all of the output. But I, I actually do think that is one of our secret sauces. I can't tell you how many, you know, billion dollar publishing houses will put an army of very smart people on something, but the end product seems very sterile, kind of stripped of all passion. It sounds like your GPS, the next step of photosynthesis is where, you know, it's just like, you're, you're, you know, as human beings, we check out on things like that. What are the other parts of your, your magic, your secret sauce? I, I think it's that. I think it's the comprehensiveness. You know, we cover across subjects and grades. It's, it's strange for me to say this, and I, it, but when you think about the education space and you think about the notion of like a brand, there's a lot of companies that you can list that have been in education for many years. You know, you can list the publishing houses. But when people say, are there brands in education? You know, where if you say that entity is producing something to you, it evokes 
something, hopefully something positive. I think that's where we didn't set out to build a brand. But I think when, if you were to ask a lot of students, you know, what does Khan Academy mean? They'll say, oh, that's like the, this is the tutor my family could not afford. Khan Academy helped me learn entire subjects at a rigorous, at a rigorous world-class level that my class wasn't offering. Uh, teachers will say, it feels like my teacher's assistant. Hopefully they say, I, I feel like I know Sal. I feel like I know the people who work at Khan Academy. They, they've got my back. Uh, Khan Academy is about wonder. It's about curiosity. And I think that that, you know, hopefully carries through in our content. It, it has been said that data is the new oil. You have millions of monthly users and hundreds of millions, I guess, billions, as you said, of, of minutes of, of learning views and 15 or so years worth of data. You have the most data on education of anyone. What have you learned from all that data? We've been able to use data to understand which content is more engaging, understanding which learning mechanics are more likely to keep someone engaged or not, what, which ones are more likely to drive learning outcomes. And I think we're just starting, we're just scratching the surface. I think as we go five, 10 years in the future, I'm hoping that Khan Academy can actually help push forward some of the learning science uh, because it is a platform where we could very easily run experiments and with very, very large uh, data sets to understand what's, what can really help students better learn. Who does Khan Academy work best for? Well, it depends what the use case is. I think if you compare Khan Academy as kind of a standalone resource, and then you compare it to what the students had before, like a textbook, I think for almost all students, Khan Academy is going to be more engaging than their textbook. And Khan Academy is going to provide more practice with more feedback and more supports than our textbook. There, it's a very clear benefit for, for all students. If you say, what are the category of students that could just kind of run with Khan Academy on its own? And we see that. We see millions of these kids. But they're not the norm. Uh, but there are millions of kids. You know, there's a young girl in Afghanistan who, after the Taliban kept her from going to school, Khan Academy became her school. And she just went super fast forward on it, starting when she was age 12 by age 17, 18, she had learned calculus, physics, chemistry, biology, economics. She wants to go to school in the U.S. She lies to her parents, goes to Pakistan to take the SAT because it's not offered in Afghanistan. She does amazingly well. She's trying to get to the U.S. to learn theoretical physics. <laughs> Nicholas Kristof writes a story about her, Meet Sultana, the Taliban's worst fear. And that's what got her political asylum. Last I heard, she was doing quantum computing research at Caltech. So there are people like that. And for them, I do think Khan Academy is something like a, of a lifeline. And it gives me incredible joy that, that we can play a part in, you know, unlocking people like that. It makes you wonder how many other people are like that if we can just, you know, get to them. But I think there's a spectrum. There's Sultana at one end and then there's at the other end, there's kids that need significant other supports. And that's why we've always emphasized that Khan Academy is best used when it's used with a really incredible teacher in a classroom and a social context, because then you can get best of both worlds. Kids can learn at their own time and pace on Khan Academy. And as we said, Khan Academy is far better than, you know, paper worksheets or textbook in terms of supports and feedback and gamification, but it also provides data to the teacher and far better to data than the, the textbook or the worksheets would have provided. And then the teacher can see, okay, who's progressing? Maybe they have some sultanas in the room, but who needs some more supports? And they can take those kids aside and do a more focused intervention. It could be an intervention academically, or it could be like figuring out what's going on in their head. They might have something going on at home. And so that allows a teacher to get more leverage, more scale, and, and really unblock the kids who need it most. What are some of your recommendations, building habits or anything else? You see students succeed, you see students struggle, you see students persevere. 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm a big believer in in habit generally. You know, for any parents and students watching, whatever you think you or your child is capable of, I guarantee you, if you just pick a direction and dedicate even 20 minutes a day to that direction, but that 20 minutes can't just be revisiting or redoing what you already know and what you feel comfortable with. If you're willing to engage in things that are essentially at your learning edge, that 20 minutes every day, you'd be shocked how much it can build, even in a month or two, to completely changing your capabilities in that space and your perception of yourself in that space. And we see letters all the time from folks who dropped out of high school, who thought they weren't good at math or science or some other topic. And then as, you know, maybe as an 18-year-old, they want to go back to college or as a 20-year-old, they want to go back to college. And they said, yeah, I spent the summer, I just spent 30 minutes a day, an hour a day on Khan Academy. I started at one plus one equals two. And I just relearned everything or filled in all my gaps. And these letters, these people are both happy and thankful, but they're also angry. They're like, why couldn't I have done this before? And now math is intuitive for me. There's nothing, it's not rocket science. I mean, even rocket science isn't rocket science. If you learn all of the fundamentals and learn it intuitively and get a chance to get practice and, and feedback. So that's my, my biggest advice is that you know, pick a direction, build a habit, be willing to step out of your comfort zone. And Khan Academy is a great tool for doing that, especially in an academic context. Tell us about Khan Academy and COVID. What are you doing now? Yeah, you can imagine when schools started closing, you know, when we even thought it, they might close back in early March, it's one of those moments where you, you, you look left and you look right and you say, I guess this is us. Uh, we could have never imagined this scenario, but people would need something that is accessible, that could work even on a cell phone at home, that also has kind of a teacher school lens that covers across many subjects and grades that is hopefully free, that is trusted. And if you put those constraints on it, it's kind of Khan Academy. And even in theory, available in multiple languages where there's 46 translation projects of Khan Academy around the world. And so we started essentially creating kind of a war room within the organization of like, what will the world need if schools get closed? This is before we, we knew that they were going to get closed. We said, okay, we're gonna have to run webinars for teachers and parents to understand how to do this. We're gonna have to create schedules and learning plans for students so that Teachers and parents don't have structured days. Where does Khan Academy fit in? But how can you use other things, Zoom, video conferencing, to have a, a decent distance learning experience for students to make sure that they don't atrophy? And then as soon as the schools closed, we saw our traffic. We were talking about the numbers earlier. On a normal day during the school year, we were seeing about 30 million learning minutes a day. We saw that hit 90 million learning minutes a day. I suspect we go back to school this year, it's going to go even higher. And we just kept saying, like, what else does the world need? Okay, the world's going to need better ways to fill in kids' gaps because a lot of kids, if they didn't stay engaged during COVID, they're going to have even larger gaps when they return to school, whatever return means. And so we created Get Ready for Grade Level courses. These are courses that have all the prerequisites up to and including the grade level that students are able to enter. They can take a course challenge. If they get 80 or 90% of the course challenge, then the teacher or the student or the parent can feel confident that they're ready for grade level. If they don't, they can keep working, fill in those gaps. They can do that in parallel while they work at on their own time and pace at the grade level course. So we're just trying to do a full court press right now. And, you know, we're entering into a school year that is very likely to be distanced. And, you know, people I know in the know on the vaccines and the therapies, they think this is going to be a year. There's a 75% chance that this time next year, COVID is essentially under control, either because we have therapies that make it less scary, or maybe the vaccine has is, is been broadly been available and it's effective. But they're telling me there's a 25% chance that this is a next school year might be affected as well. And so, you know, we're trying to have that mindset. What do we need to build that's going to be useful for COVID and frankly, beyond? 
And we're also trying to advocate that many people think in that way, because right now, I think in most of the education system, they've been thinking of this more as a rolling kind of one month or two month crises. And if you think of it that way, you're never going to come up with really strong solutions. Where would you like to see Khan Academy in five years or so? Well, I think we want to cover all the subjects and grades and core academic, you know, from pre-K through the core of college. I hope that our uh, and this includes English and language arts and history and, and you know things that we we don't have is filled out yet. I hope uh, that uh, you know our software is only that much more engaging that it can really you know we've really tweaked it so that kids get addicted to it in a good way. We we see evidence that that's already happening for certain kids, but hopefully that's happening for more kids. And I hope that there's actually pathways for folks work on Khan Academy to be translated into opportunity so that like, hey, you learned X, Y, and Z on Khan Academy. That's enough to get you this apprenticeship. That's enough to get you this job. That's enough to get you into higher education. And we have helped teachers really feel empowered, really reimagine their classrooms, really get to this, you know, utopian state or closer to a utopian state of where a teacher in a classroom of 30 is able to cater to the individual needs of all 30 students, make sure that no kids are left behind, so to speak. In a world where anything is possible, your, your Isaac Asimov kind of world, the future, and education is reimagined, what would education look like? It's a fun question. I, I would say it's a competency-based world that if you know the material, if you know, and it, you know, it could be academic material, you know, calculus, or it could be like, if you're a really good public speaker or you have deep empathy, there's a way for you to prove it. And if you prove it, it's recognized anywhere around the world and it can immediately be translated into opportunity. Then there's many paths to get there and different paths are going to work well for different folks. I would hope that Khan Academy is a significant part. For some folks, Khan Academy might be the path, the sultanas of the world. For others, it might be part of their path. Maybe it's Khan Academy plus their community college in conjunction, are able that, to get them to the competencies that they care about that can immediately be translated into opportunity. I hope that Khan Academy, you know, I have a skunkworks project right now called schoolhouse.world, which is outside of Khan Academy, but I'm hoping to bring it in one day if it, if it proves itself that it works, which is matching human beings with each other to tutor each other and help each other and even evaluate each other and credential each other. You know, I hope that in five or 10 years or dream state that you've, you've allowed me to answer that that exists too, that not only are you learning, but you're able to connect with people around the world. And that adds a whole other dimension. Not only would that would help engage people and help them learn the content and they can get credentials and get evaluated. It'll create a true global community. It'll create true empathy, not to get hokey, but you know, you can imagine a, a student in, Israel being tutored by a student in Iran or a student in Pakistan learning from a student in India. When you do that kind of stuff, not only will they be helping each other as individuals, but that I think kind of thing could build a lot of global empathy. That is a wonderful vision. Before I ask you for the, your three takeaways, the three key insights you'd like to leave our audience with today, is there anything else you'd like to discuss that you haven't already touched upon? As you probably tell, I, I tend to, you know, sometimes have my head in the clouds, but then I, I very quickly want to make make it happen. But, you know, this situation we're in with COVID, I think, you know, we need to underline that if we don't get this thing right, it's going to be a catastrophe. And getting it right is like we have to have a baseline, a point of view of what decent distance learning looks like. How do we support folks, especially some of the most vulnerable students out there? And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid right now because... You know, we're trying to do what we can. We're trying to work with as many districts as we can. We're trying to be a stopgap if kids and families don't have anything else. Ideally, we're able to use by the districts, by the teachers, so that we get the best of both worlds. But I, I actually think this might be a bigger deal than the pandemic 
I mean, the pandemic's a big deal. I don't want to make light of that. But if, you know, historians 10 years or 50 years in the future, if we have a year to two of 30, 40, 50% of the kids not being able to really develop themselves, I think that's going to have cascades into society that we're going to notice in 10 or 15 or 20 years. I would like to see more people acting with more urgency on this dimension of the crisis right now, which might turn into a catastrophe. What are the three key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Well, you know, what I just said is a little pessimistic, but I think we can fix it. You know, the the takeaways are, I generally believe almost anyone can learn almost anything. And that sounds very bold and very, but I see it time and time again. It kind of, I get letters probably while we're talking, I probably got a few letters from folks essentially talking about their own narrative saying, I didn't think I could learn it. Now I can. So that's one. I think uh, the second thing is, you know, there's some institutions or ways of doing things in our life that are so ingrained in us because they've always existed. They just seem like they were just delivered with that. God came down and said, thou shalt do it this way. And you do it this way. But I think education is one of those systems where, you know, the education system we know was essentially developed about 150, 200 years ago. It really took its modern form, its modern form in 1890. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity so that we can take it to the next level. So not only will people learn more, but all of the people involved in it, the teachers, the students, family, actually enjoy it more and get more from it and have more energy for it. So that's the second one. And I think the third one is, if we are able to do this, if we're able to allow people to tap into their potential at a global scale, I do think, you know, this is my science fiction hat on, it would be like a a birth of a new humanity that you could get to another. Another uh, book I enjoy is Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, it ends with the earth kind of disappearing and stuff. So, you know, I don't want to say that's what I want to happen, but it, it talks about kind of humanity elevating to another level. And obviously we've done that many times over our past, the advent of fire, the advent of writing, the advent of, of agriculture. I think if we truly had global world-class education for anyone anywhere, and if it was truly connected to opportunity and people were really able to connect with each other, we're going to get 10 X, the number of cures for diseases, 10 X figuring out ways to, travel the cosmos, 10x ways to avoid wars and famines and figure out ways to feed ourselves and provide, solve issues like climate change. So yeah, that's what gets me excited. That's a very nice and optimistic way for us to end our discussion today. Thank you so much, Sal, for your comments today. Thank you so much, Lynn. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can listen or subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you would like to receive information on upcoming episodes, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at 3takeaways.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Note that 3takeaways.com is with the number 3, 3 is not spelled out. For all social media and podcast links, go to 3takeaways.com.